God does not show favoritism, and neither should we. God does not show favoritism, and neither should we. We're going to be looking this morning at a story in the book of Acts. And we're going to, we're going to go through a bit of the Old Testament to get there. Um, but we're going to be looking at a story about favoritism. And God's proof that he doesn't have it. In other words, that God loves each of us just as much, more than we could possibly imagine or ever love anyone else. It's not a thing that we can earn. It's not a thing that we can increase. His love is absolute. His love is unrelenting. His love is always there. And so we're going to be in Acts 10, but I want to talk about something before we get there. This is a story in Acts 10, the story of Cornelius the centurion. This is a story about Jewish identity. And one of the things that really separated the Jew, Jewish people in the ancient world out from those around them were their dietary laws. Now that might sound like kind of a silly thing to you and I that a, a people's diet would be the thing that sets them apart. There were a few others, but this was a thing that people could see. This was the thing that people could know. That if you were a Jew, you did not eat in the same way or the same foods that other people did. Now, you might wonder what the dietary laws were. Well, there are two chapters where you can read about them in detail. If you are dying to know what are all the things the Jewish people could and couldn't eat, you can go to Leviticus 11 or Deuteronomy 14. I think it's fascinating the number of things that they could not eat. But I'm going I'm to simplify the rules as much as I can. This isn't a perfect rendition of it, but it's, it's as close as we're going to get simply. There were two big basic rules for them. The first one was this. If a mammal both chews the cud and has a cloven hoof. In other words, that means if they digest their food really well. If you don't know what chewing the cud is, just let it stay there. Um, or if the, the hoof is split into at least two, then the Jews could eat it. Otherwise, they couldn't. Right, So this restricts a lot of animals out of what they can eat. And then for fish, if a fish has both fins and scales, then they can eat them. If not, they were told to find them detestable. It wasn't just that it was food they were not to eat. It was, it was an animal that was bad. It was an animal that was unclean. They were not to eat or have contact with them at all. Now, there's also a list of off-limits birds and a small list of acceptable insects. We're not going to go into any of that. But acceptable insects, I don't know that God needed to include that, but he apparently did. And that's basically the list. Now, there are a lot more rules about how unclean anim things that are unclean affect the world around it. This uncleanness was a state, a thing that, that when an object became unclean, it was unfit to be before God in worship. It could not be brought before him. It was tainted. And this taint could spread to the things around them. So if you touched an unclean thing for a period of time, that made you 
unclean. That's how this this worked. And anyone or anything that was unclean was unfit or unable to come before God in worship. In fact, in a few stories in the Old Testament, when an unclean thing was brought into the temple, into the immediate presence of God, things happened. God was not okay with that. So a thing that's unclean is tainted. And there's all these animals that are considered unclean. Now, if you're like me, you'll wonder why. Why did God make a list of clean and unclean animals for his people? Now, there's a couple of reasons why. Almost certainly part of it, a small part of it, is probably some of these animals were difficult to prepare, right? They were dangerous if not prepared correctly. And so to protect his people from having certain issues with the food that they ate that he made some of these animals unclean. But that can't be the majority of the reason. There's too much that's restricted. I think largely it was about creating an identity, a sense of community for his people. They were Jewish. They were God's people. They were holy. One of the ways they knew this was because they held themselves to a unique standard. They had this very small list of approved food. In other words, they're hunting, they're they're being predators, they're killing. I talked to Pastor Ben about this this morning, and this was his insight, and I really appreciated it. God kept his people to this, this small amount of hunting and killing to restrict the violence that they had to do just to just to be able to survive and eat. But it was about it had this effect of of forming an inside and an outside very clearly. In fact, you could not go into a person's home if they had unclean food without also becoming unclean. And because every Jewish person wanted to be able to come before God, that meant you did not go into the home of a person who was not Jewish. And in this way and others, it formed this this boundary around God's people that set them apart. And so while they were called to be the light, a light of the world... And they were called for the sake of the world. God wanted to use them to to bring redemption, to point to him. While that was the desire, they ended up becoming very, very racist. This, This separateness led to this deliberate isolation on God's part. They saw Gentiles. Now, Gentiles are are people who are not Jewish, right? And Gentiles are unclean. They saw Gentiles as dirty and uncivilized. And oftentimes they saw them as unworthy of God's love. You remember the book of Jonah. They were tainted by the things that they ate and they were unfit to come before God in worship. And this was a a practice and a belief that went very deep into the heart of every Jewish person. If this was what you were taught, and this is what you believed, and this is what you practiced your entire life, can you imagine how difficult it would be to just let that go? If you're someone that's ever grown up with a prejudice, for example, that as you became older you realized wasn't good, you know the struggle of just letting it go because it can go deep inside and can be difficult to just let go. And that was the position of God's people, especially those who followed Jesus in the first century. They were put in this place of having to let it go. 
And that's the story we're in today. It's Acts chapter 10. So I was going to read the whole thing this morning, and then it occurred to me that it is 43 verses long. The PowerPoint was 19 slides. So since Logan is not able to come up here and have to read the whole thing, I decided to just go ahead and skip that part. So there was a, we're gonna, I'm going to summarize a story for you as we go. There was this man named Cornelius. Now there's two things that we need to know about Cornelius. He was a centurion, which means that he was a high-ranking soldier. He was, he was a man who was valued and respected. The Romans had a very high view of the military. And he was also a God-fearer. And that means he was a Gentile who believed in God but had not converted. He'd not become Jewish. You could say it this way. He was flirting with God. Now, if you've been part of, of God's people for very long, you know that flirting with God is dangerous. You come to church for a while, not sure if you want to, to make, it, make it yours, not sure if you want to make the change, and eventually God just grabs a hold and brings you in. Now, one day at about 3 p.m., while he was praying, an angel appeared to him. Now, we could stop right there for a moment. Anytime an angel appears in the New Testament, especially in the book of Acts, something amazing is about to happen. Something incredible is about to happen. And that's what we're about to see. So he's praying, and an angel appeared to him and told him to send men to go and get this man named Peter. Now, I want you to get this. That, that he goes out to pray, closes his eyes, asks for God to show himself to him, and an angel appears. I wonder how you would respond if that happened as you prayed over lunch later today. You're sitting at the restaurant, you close your eyes, you pray, and all of a sudden an angel appears before you. You, I think, like Cornelius, like me, you'd be terrified. And that's what he was, but... He decides to do what the angel has told him to do. And let me tell you, if an angel appears before you and tells you to do something, just, just do it. So Cornelius sends men to go to Peter. Now the next day at about noon, Peter went up on a roof to pray. That was a common thing at the time. They had flat roofs on their homes, and, and often it would be cooler than the inside of the home. And so he went up on the roof to pray. And then the scripture tells us that he got hungry. And so he asked his host to prepare some food. And while he was praying and waiting for the, the food to be made, God sent him a vision. And the vision was strange. It was, not, it was not something that he'd ever seen or thought of before. Because it showed him a sheet with all kinds of unclean animals. Animals he was absolutely not allowed to be near or to touch and certainly not to eat. They're animals that Peter is absolutely forbidden to eat. In fact, his first thing that he says is, Lord, I've never eaten any of these animals. But the voice of God tells him to kill and eat. And Peter says, no, Lord, I've never eaten anything unclean. And the voice of the Lord responded by saying, don't call anything unclean that the Lord has made clean. In other words, Peter, you've got to let this go. Now, it happens three times, and we all know why it happens three times, right? Because the first time, Peter's wondering if it's just a little bit too hot outside, and he's seeing things. The second time, he's thinking, no, this can't possibly be true, because this is something deep in the core of my being. 
And it takes three times to really get through to Peter. And so then, Peter sits and he thinks about what all this means. And right then, Cornelius' men appear almost like someone had set it up to happen that way. And then the Holy Spirit speaks to Simon and told him to go with them. Now, I hope that you have a practice, especially in times of prayer, to be listening to the Holy Spirit. This is an aside. It's a side note, but it's very important. Oftentimes, I'll hear people say that they just don't hear from God. Whether it's a direct voice or whether a prompting or whether wisdom spoken through someone else, they just don't hear. Please hear me. You need to make time to listen. Whatever your prayer practice is, if you pray every morning, set aside time to just listen. Otherwise, you're like sitting in a room with God and you do nothing but talk. And then at the end of the conversation, you say, why didn't you say anything? Right? You've got to give time to listen. It's what Peter does and the Holy Spirit tells him to go. But first, and I love this, he invites them in for a meal and they stay for the evening. And then the next day, they and Peter go to Cornelius' home. And when, when Peter arrives, Cornelius, who's a little confused, falls down at his feet in reverence. And Peter said, stand up, I'm only a man. And then in, in Acts 10, 27 to 29, while talking with him, Peter went inside and found a large gathering of people. He said to them, you're well aware that it is against our law for a Jew to associate with or to visit a Gentile. In other words, you know I'm not supposed to be here. But God has shown me that I should not call anyone impure or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came. May I ask why you sent for me? Cornelius tells him, an angel told me to, and he said that you would have a message that I needed to hear. And Peter says this, I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism. God does not show favoritism. There comes a moment in every Christian's life when they realize, really, truly realize, and understand that they cannot earn God's love. It's a milestone of faith. We're told that early on, but, but deep inside, somehow we all feel like if we just are good, then God loves us more. And something happens in a person's life, somehow God brings them to the truth that actually that isn't the truth. You cannot earn his love, and that is both wonderful and terrifying. And it's wonderful because I am a wretch, and you are too. And even when we do good things, our motives are usually impure. We do good things because it makes us feel good. Or we do good things because we want other people to think well of us. Or we do good things because we know that we're supposed to. And even though we just absolutely don't want to, we don't want to shirk our duty. Our motives are very rarely, genuinely, only love. But... All of us are sinful to the core. So because of the terrible wretches we are, it's a gift that we cannot earn God's love. It's wonderful. And it's terrifying. And it's terrifying because we realize thoroughly and completely that we are not in control of how much 
God loves us. And that's harder for some of us than others of us, but I think for all of us, it's difficult to realize that there's nothing I can do to make God love me more. It's wonderful to realize there's nothing I can do to make him love me less, but it's terrifying to think I'm not in control of this at all. God's love is constant. And we really, we really like to be in control. If you're not sure about, about whether or not that's true, I always think it's interesting how much fear we have for riding on airplanes. People tend to be afraid of flying. We know that flying is incredibly safer than driving. By far more accidents happen while you're driving than they do flying, but people aren't afraid to drive. Why? Because they're behind the wheel. I imagine pilots aren't very afraid to fly, right? We like to be in control, but we're not in control of God's love. Now, James chapter 2 tells us that this characteristic of God, the fact that he doesn't show favoritism, that he doesn't love me any more than you or doesn't love you any more than anyone else, that characteristic of God, that unwillingness or inability of his to show favoritism, he expects us to do that too. We aren't supposed to show favoritism. Now, in the, in the New Testament, when James talks about it, most of the time, favoritism in that culture would happen because of wealth, right? A wealthy person or a person of certain standing would be the one you'd really want to give your time and attention to. And James says, don't do that. That person is no more important than anyone else. Now, for us, it's a little different. I think that's true. It might be easy for us to, to give favoritism to a person who's wealthy or to a person who has a, a social standing, but I think that for us, we usually have a few other things that we think about. It's easy for us to play favorites with people who are on the, in the in-group, who, who are part of the group, who look like us, who act like us, who are, who are accepted already into our social circles. It's easy for us to, to play favorites there, to, to avoid people on the outside or to give less time or affection or care to those who aren't already in. Another way that we tend to play favorites is social giftedness. You know those people that are just really easy to like and everything about them is wonderful. A few of you are nodding your heads and, and, and looking at other people and a few of you are nodding your heads and just not looking at anyone else. I assume you think that's you, right? Those people that are just really easy to like. That's an easy way for us to, to lean into playing favorites. We tend to give those people. It's easier for us to give those people our time, our affection, our care, our concern. We want them to be around. And here's the problem. There's nothing wrong with wanting them to be around. It's the people that don't fit that mold that get excluded. And I think one of the things we have to be very careful about is when we give love to one another, when we show hospitality to one another, the challenge that we have is to be inviting people to our homes. And I hope that you've done that. I hope that you've been in that process of inviting people that you've, you're comfortable with into your homes. Eventually, it's going to be people you're a little less comfortable with, and then people that go to church here that you've not had before. And my hope is that you won't look through who are the ones who are already in, 
Who are the ones that already go with us to lunch? Who are the ones that already spend time with us? And I hope that you won't look at who are the ones who are the easiest to talk to? Who are the ones that are going to give us the most enjoyable, fun evening? But I hope that you'll look at it through the lens of not playing favorites and saying, who do I feel called to extend love to today? Who do I feel called to be a blessing to today? For Peter, he's realizing that all the rules he's known his entire life about how the Jews are supposed to be different are over. And then he preaches the gospel. Now, I've had, that, I've had the blessing to be able to preach the gospel to people that have never heard it before. And it's an amazing, truly wonderful thing. When I was in West Africa, in Ghana, the last medical clinic we did, there was this group of kids. We were supposed to do like a vacation Bible school thing with them, and, and they, uh, some of the rowdy ones stole all of our supplies and ran off. And so we had no ability to speak to them, and we had no ability to entertain them. So we came back to the medical clinic, but, but the group wasn't done. So I just had everyone get in a circle. I got a translator, and I, I played games with them. Games that I was comfortable with from karate, just standing in place, playing games. We did the alphabet, and they would sing loud, and they loved it. It was fun. But it just hit me at one point that I have a translator, and I have all these people, and none of them have ever heard about Jesus. And so I, I spent about 20 minutes going through the Bible, and, and then I spent about 20 minutes sharing the gospel with them. And it was amazing to do because they were enraptured. Not with me or my storytelling ability, but with Jesus. And afterwards, when they were, I asked if there were questions, and the hands went up, and people wanted to know what would happen when he came back, and, and what would happen to the people that didn't belong to him when he came back, and how could they belong to Jesus. It was amazing. Peter does that here. He's preaching the gospel to people who are ready, people that have never heard it before. And they respond in an incredible way. We're going to be in Acts chapter 10, verses 36 through 43. It'll be on the screen. And follow along. Peter said, You know the message God sent to the people of Israel, announcing the good news of peace through Jesus Christ, who is Lord of all. You know what has happened throughout the province of Judea, beginning in Galilee after the baptism that John preached, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit, and with power, and how he went around doing good and healing all who were under the power of the devil, because God was with him. We are witnesses of everything he did in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They killed him by hanging him on a cross, but God raised him from the dead on the third day and caused him to be seen. He was not seen by all the people, but by witnesses whom God had already chosen. By us who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. He commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one whom God appointed as judge of the living and the dead. All the prophets testify about him that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. Everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness. That believes is that word faith, right? Everyone who has faith in Jesus, who accepts him as Lord and Savior and commits to him, 
receive forgiveness of sins through his name. And when we receive that forgiveness, we're then filled by the Holy Spirit. It's an incredible, remarkable, wonderful gift. And it's exactly what happens in this story for Gentiles. For the first time, they receive the Holy Spirit. And then something begins. And we're called to live this resurrection life. This God in heaven who loves and saves us, calls us to be his body, his hands, and his feet, to love the people around us as he does. He doesn't show favorites, and he calls us not to either. And so as Christians, we're called to be open. I think that's the word that best suits this letting go of prejudices, letting go of favoritism. We're called to be open, even to those we don't feel comfortable with. Now, there's, there's different kinds of comfort. I'm not telling you that if you think a person is dangerous or if you're afraid of a person, that that means you're supposed to only invite them into your home, right? That's not what I'm talking about. You should, of course, be wise. But those people who, who don't necessarily click with you, those people who are on the outside, you can be sure of a few things. They've probably been on the outside many times. And for them, it's an incredible, remarkable gift to be extended an invitation for hospitality. And so whether it's at church, whether it's a person who comes here who's not part of the in-group, who maybe doesn't look like most of the people here look, or doesn't talk like most of the people here talk. One thing I love about this church is we are welcoming of people who are different. I've seen it again and again that people are not excluded or pushed to the outside because they're different here, and I love that about Calvary. That's something we're called to, and it's something we're called to at home as well. And so as you're making your decisions, and I hope that you are, I hope that you're making plans about who to, who to invite over, my challenge to you is this. Make yourself uncomfortable. Invite that one that, as you think, they're not likely to get invited elsewhere or by, by someone else. And I want to say a word here. I've heard from so many people recently, enough that I, that I want to say something, and I'll say something again later. The, there is some kind of phenomenon that happens that a large group of people simultaneously feel that they're the ones who invite and not the ones who are invited. And I believe that, that that's true. I just don't understand it. I want to tell you this. If that's you, if you're hearing me talk about this and you're worrying, maybe people aren't going to invite me because Clayton's telling them to invite people they don't know. It's not going to get better. It's going to get worse. I want to assure you that for almost every person I've heard that from, there are people in the same group who say the same thing. I think we're just prone to kind of feel isolated. If that's you, don't be discouraged. Just continue to reach out. And I have, I have absolute confidence that you'll see that reciprocated. My call to all of us is this, to reach out even to the point that it makes us uncomfortable. God does not show favoritism. One of the most incredible miracles Jesus ever performs as he walks around for three years, does ministry, 
and doesn't show favoritism. And one of the most difficult challenges God's people are ever called to is to not show favoritism. So my question for you is this. How are you going to be like God in this way? What's that going to look like for you? Can you step out in faith? Invite someone who's a little different than the one that you would, you would choose first. Make yourself uncomfortable and see how God works in the midst of it. Let's pray. Father God, we come before you thankful for blessings. We love you and we praise you. We pray that you would give us courage, that you'd give us wisdom and discernment, but that you'd make us like you and you would use us to show love to those who are isolated, to those who are marginalized, to those who don't feel loved. Speak to us, Lord, through your Spirit. Bring them to mind and help Calvary to be a place that's full of people whose mission it is to make sure that those around them know that they're loved. We pray these things in your Son's holy and precious name. Amen.